Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz veteran saxophonist, composer, and producer David Benny. He was born in Miami, raised in Southern California, and these days he's a fixture in New York City. And amongst many other things, he performs regularly at the 55 Bar in New York. In L.A., he had some great teachers, but in New York City, he studied with Phil Woods, Dave Liebman, and George Coleman to get his jazz gears moving in full fluidity. He has and is traveling the world world with his jazz prowess and he is also a producer he's produced all of his own 22 albums and for many other cats out there so get to know david and dig this interview my friends david thank you for taking some time out it's an honor to speak with you about your life and jazz it's been well spent i appreciate it uh, no problem thank you for asking me right on so i'm going to go ahead and start off here i know that there's a lot of things that are going on musically on a regular basis but in your own words give me a snapshot of activity that's going on you know there's various little gigs that I do that are actually probably the most fun things that I do, but they're small, like playing in the 55 bar last night with Adam Rogers and Obed Calvert and Matt Brewer. It was a really fun gig and my usual gigs. And then I, you know, traveling, doing various things in different bands in different countries. And um, I'm about to go to L.A. to do a, the Angel City Fest with a trio that I put together, which is just two drummers and myself, actually. And I don't know, producing and, you know, writing music and doing all that stuff all the time. I spend my days kind of doing that, writing music. I'm also working on songs where I sing and, you know, stuff just in the computer, actually, which I've been working on the last couple weeks heavily. Uh, Also, I'm writing classical music too actually I, I, I did some stuff in uh, Holland with a chamber ensemble which is just string well string and winds music and so just a bunch of different things I like to keep you know busy and uh, with different projects at, at one time you know I, I I I get not bored but I, I I like to move around you know with with different things not just uh you know, my quartet or something, you know. Yeah, and that's a great overview of everything, and I'm going to peel back the layers of all that. But what I find very cool about a lot of musicians is that, especially in New York City, where you get the chance to perform regularly at a place like the 55 Bar, what is that like to have a regular gig there all the time? Well, it's fantastic, and it's, it's unusual even for here. I mean, there's only a few of us who have regular gigs. I mean, there's the Monday Night Vanguard Orchestra. There's Mike Stern, who has this, at the same place as me at 55 Bar, and there's Wayne Krantz. Other than that, there are not many people or many gigs in New York that are con- constant, you know. And um, mine, I've been doing this gig for 16 years, and it allows you to develop a band. It allows you to, to write music, and, um, develop your playing. It's uh, very important to my growth as a musician and composer and everything, and it has been. And um, I'm just, I feel lucky to have it. And that, no, I'm actually starting another one uh, on the, I do alternate Tuesdays at the 55 bar, but now I'm going to be doing alternate Tuesdays at, there's a place here called New Blue, which is a great club, and they built a new one, and I'm going to start doing things there. But it's going to be more electric. Uh, the thing I do at the 55 bar is more like jazz, I guess. I don't know, whatever, for lack of a better term. Uh, the thing at New Blue is going to be more of like an electronic, it's still improvisation, but more electric vibe, I guess, you know. So they're just kind of invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, let's go way back before New York City came into your life. You were born in Miami, raised in yeah. Southern California. Man, talk about dripping with sunshine, and then you go to New York. Um, <laughs> what What were your early years like for you to get such a love for not only music but jazz? Well, I moved to New York when I was 19. I left um, California very, you know, young, right after high school. And I moved here, and it was New York, a different New York. I mean, it was New York in 1981, actually. And nobody wanted to live here. It was crime-ridden. It was dirty. It was, uh, they couldn't give apartments away. It was a completely different place. Tom, Times Square was you know, hookers and drug dealers and, you know, my even neighborhood I live in now. I lived in the Bronx for five years, too, which was a war zone. But here, where I live now, it's, I've lived for actually in the same apartment for 30 years. Uh, even here, it's changed drastically. 72nd and Broadway area it was called Needle Park back then. There's a, there's a movie, actually, with Dustin Hoff, which was about that area. And now it's, you know, $8 million apartments and expensive, you know, caviar places. And I mean, you can't even imagine the change. And Times Square is like Disneyland and everything's super expensive. So the, the just the environment has changed drastically, which I, I would think that that would change the music. But I think I established myself musically in in the poor times. And that's kind of kind of carried through all this, you know, the way the city is now. I don't think it really affects me too much, um, the change in the city, other than, like, living, you know, the the, the feeling of the city and the, maybe the safeness and, and all that. But musically, I don't think it's changed. But but musically, the city was very vibrant and everybody was playing around at many jam sessions back then. And they are now, but they're different. They're much more um, informed by jazz education, people who are going to school and getting degrees, and, you know, that that wasn't what it was like when I moved here. It was people who came here to, to play the music that they loved, and there was an old-school contingent that sort of vibed you but also taught you at the same time, and um, it's not like that anymore. It's it's two different, kind of different worlds, with students being students and idolizing each other and and... It's it's I don't really like the way that that is now here. It's um, it's not like it used to be, but um, there's more musicians than ever. It's just the music isn't quite as vital somehow, and I think that might have to do that. That has mostly to do with jazz education, which has become a, a huge business in the country, but and in the world. But um, it was a different time. I'm glad I came when I did. Um, and uh, it was, I, I was exposed to a lot of, I was like, I was talking to Dave Liebman, we did this, Dave Liebman was my mentor back then, um, now we play together, uh, we did a saxophone quartet record recently, and he was, we were talking about old times, and he was saying, what year did you move here again? And we, I told him, and, and he said, wow, yeah, even though it was 1981, he goes, oh, you moved here in the 70s, and I knew what he meant, because he said it was the 70s here until about 1986, okay. which is a, exactly the truth. I mean, that generation and that vibe and everything was the same through the 70s into into 1986. And then after 86 is when things started to change. The yuppie thing, Wall Street thing, the 
mayor Koch, the whole started things started to change, and from that on, and then on, it became a different place. Uh, not only city-wise, but musically, it started to change drastically. You know, so now it's I, I love it. I still love it here, but it's it's different. You know. You know, as a kid growing up in Kansas City, I was an ardent disciple of David Letterman. When you describe that, I think about his intro. It just had that grit and grime. The cabs were dirty. There was steam coming out of the ground. People looked just hungry and ready to go. And, yeah, it's – you know, I had a cousin that lived in Long Island, and, and she kind of talked about how things changed drastically, how, you know, Times Square kind of turned into Walt Disney World and just a lot of things that changed over the years. So it's uh, it's uh, interesting to, to hear that. Yeah. Um I so said, I mean I I don't know I said David Liebman but maybe you said I thought I said Letterman but yeah Letterman at the start of Letterman he was the, they they did have that he had that grit on uh, Saturday night Saturday Night Live too always showing yeah. the steam coming out of the yeah yeah the whole thing. yeah and that's, yeah. yeah no I, I was totally going no I was totally going for the Letterman yeah. angle because that that was it man yeah. I mean and Letterman was he was praising the 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 city so much and and but he was showing it in the beginning of it and. You know, kids from Kansas City seeing that, that's that's a pretty big uh, imagery. But um, let me let me ask you this. When you were growing up, what kind of jazz albums, what kind of seminal listening LPs did you have that really got you baptized into jazz? Well, um, I think the very first things that I was interested in when I was a kid, my my father was, and my parents were really into jazz, but they, my father was also into rock and punk and stuff, so he... He would listen to like Jimi Hendrix and Fly in the Family Stone and all that stuff. And I think as a as a young kid, that was the stuff that took me first. Even Elton John, like early Elton John, which I actually still love. But um, you know, that kind of stuff hit me first. And then somewhere when I was about twelve years old, maybe thirteen, twelve years old, I the jazz thing started to hit me. And I remember listening to. Um, well, there was a guy you probably don't know, but he was a, a guy named John Clemmer who was in in California at the time, and still is actually. But um, he made these records that were kind of almost free jazz ish, but they they had elements of like he used to use an echoplex and all this stuff, and and um, it was kind of edgy music. And I, my my dad had all those records, and I would listen to those, and then. Weirdly enough, he, this guy John Clemmer was also he started he basically started smooth jazz in a way because he made a record in the seventies called Touch, which became massively huge, easy listening jazz record. It was, you could trace it as being maybe the first in that way of the smooth jazz. So he kind of went from this extreme energy thing into this he became famous for the smooth thing anyway i was listening to him and i remember then that sort of took me to train because i remember reading an interview with in downbeat or something with john clemmer who's talking about coltrane and i started listening heavily to coltrane which my parents have a lot of coltrane records so i started listening to that and um and bebop too like clifford brown i was really into and and um you know my dad had charlie parker records and I would listen to that, but I soon after that got really into what was happening at the time, which was basically fusion, but, you know, um, Weather Report, Return to Forever, Stanley Clark, um, you know, I was really into Wayne Shorter, Native Dancer was a huge album for me. Um, and I used to go see Weather Report play, and all those bands play back then when I was a kid, and 
So that music was really, really, Herbie Hancock, George Duke, those were really, really big people for me. Um, so, you know, I, the, some of the records that were huge for me were records that were not big then, but are famous now, like Herbie Hancock's Sunlight, which everybody copies now. And I was telling people about that record for 25 years, and now it's like a hugely important record for a, a certain scene. Um, Robert Glasper and all those guys, you know. Um, but, you know, that stuff, uh, Joe Henderson was huge for me, Cannibal Adderley, every Cannibal Adderley record basically was huge, Miles, um, you know, all that that stuff, you know, that, that's what I was listening to all through high school and, you know, a mixture of bebop and fusion sort of. And I wasn't not in, I wasn't into rock or anything at that time. And I assume when I moved to New York, I, changed, I started opening up and got way into rock and all kinds of music like I am now. I listen to everything. Also, I meant to say moving to New York, also something I didn't touch on, but moving to New York, I did day jobs here for 10 years. So I, I was a receptionist for nine years. I I, um, I worked in the principal department at a, at a supermarket. I worked at Macy's in the junior miss department. And I did a bunch of day jobs, and uh, which is, was an important thing in a way. I think a lot of people don't do that anymore either, a lot of students. Um, and it, it, was, it taught me something. And one of the things it taught me was that I never wanted to do any kind of job other than music <laughs> ever in my life. So it made me work really hard at music. And, uh, I, and then I started doing weddings, and I was on the blues scene for three years. A lot of gigs that don't happen anymore were really informative for me um, and still, I think, really helped the music that I make now. You know, just yeah. the, the wide-ranging background of experience through the city and through the music and everything, you know. Yeah. So did you always dream that you were going to grow up and become a jazz saxophonist and this was going to be your life? Well, uh, from 12 years old on, uh, yeah. And I quit for about a year, and then I went back to it when I was 14. And from, let's say, from 14 on, I knew that I was going to move to New York, and I knew that that's what I was going to do. And uh, it was, there was no question in my mind. It never was. So prior to that big move to New York that you knew you were going to do, what did you learn in L.A. from your teachers and from just your, your education? Well, I had um, really great teachers that were not – well-known outside of maybe the LAC. They were, I realized they were really great teachers. Uh, I had a teacher named John Raffel, who was a, uh, kind of a session saxophone player and woodwind player in Los Angeles. And he, he basically, he just made his living, you know, playing on, he played with Nelson Riddle, so he played a lot with Frank Sinatra. Um, he did a lot of studio work, movies, all that stuff. And back then, in the 70s, you uh, you could um, make a, a, a good living uh, because you, you he, he had a big house in the valley and uh, he was a great teacher and did session work. And back then, you could you could just play saxophone in woodwinds and play on movies and stuff and afford you know the guy had an amazing house in the valley in the hills of the valley. He had a, a pool and a Cadillac and a you know uh, you know wife and kids and who didn't work actually his wife just stayed home and um, he, he could afford to 
to do that back then just as a session musician. Um, but that's all he did. He dreamed of being, he grew up with Stan Getz, and he dreamed of being Stan Getz, but he, you know, he went the other direction because he had a family and all that stuff. So, uh, but he was a really great teacher. And he, what he did with me is he, he didn't have me learn, memorize solos or transcribe solos, which is what everybody does now. That's the, the, every student does that now. It's just, um, he, he had me write out my own solos. He gave me all the information harmonically, rhythmically, and technically I was working on stuff, but he, he didn't want me to learn what other people played. I just listened a lot. So I had a different, completely different experience than most people nowadays with the transcribing. And it gave me something that, I mean, I like to think at least is my, uh, an original approach because I don't have anything to fall back on as far as licks or any of that stuff. I came up with my own stuff. And um, so I really appreciate that now, you know. And I also had a classical teacher there that was an amazing teacher, um, really amazing teacher. Uh, and he used to have me play through these exercise books with a metronome and he'd put on like a Michael Jackson record and really loud and then you have me read things backwards and from the last bar to the first bar but backwards literally so that at a certain point I, I could read anything. I could sight read anything. Um, it was an amazing teacher. So I really loved the teachers I had in Los Angeles back then. Um, then I moved to New York and I just studied with Liebman a little bit and I studied with, uh, took a lesson with Phil Woods, George Coleman, Bob Berg, Bob Mincer. Um, all important in their own way. Um, and then I, everything else I just did on my own. I had enough, you know, Phil Woods gave me a piece of paper and he wrote down a few things on it. He said, learn this and you never have to come back to me. And I said, all right. And I learned it and then I never went back to him. <laughs> Which wow. Really, really a great lesson, actually. Um, and he was a funny guy. I mean, you know, they were such bebop kind of mentality back then, you know. Ask, even as a 19-year-old kid asking if you know wanted to get high when he got to the lesson and you know just it was a f different his, his approach he also told me a funny thing he said he said well, you, you just moved to New York I said yeah and he said okay first thing you do find a chick with a piano <laughs> in other words get a girlfriend who had a piano just because she had a piano right you could practice piano you know it was a different mentality which I, I kind of you know I, I, I liked it in a way. It was uh, old school and and uh, those guys were hardcore. And they're not necessarily around anymore, you know, so everything's through jazz education now, which is a different experience for students. Anyway, that, that's, that's kind of my background with teachers. You know, it's interesting. I actually was fortunate enough to interview Phil Woods a few years ago, and I'll tell you what. It's been very rare that I got on the phone with someone that had that much energy. I mean, he was yeah. he was on it. He was he's on a different he, he was on a completely different level of consciousness and living and you know, they say Charlie Parker said, you know, what you what you live will come through your horn. It's very evident with Phil. He was yeah. a full-on artistic force, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um Definitely. Let me ask you this in 1989, I find this interesting. You were awarded an NEA grant and you recorded your first album, Point Game. That had to be rather cool to not only get a grant, but you're kind of starting out in the game. It's your first album. What was that experience like? 
That was really important. I mean, you know, the funny thing about that was that I, a friend of mine came over. To, at the time, the, the way you copied things were like dual cassette players, and I had a dual cassette player. And he, he came over to make a copy of the cassette to send into the NEA for a grant he was trying to do. And he said, and you know, and this was the last day that possibly you could do it. He came over and he said, you know, you should do this. And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, maybe I should. So I, uh, I hurriedly put together like a three-song demo uh, where I just played, I think I played a, a standard uh, to maybe a Jamie Abersold play-along, and I played an Ornette tune solo, and maybe one other thing. And I threw it on a cassette, and I put it in the mail, um, you know, along with, with his, you know, as he emailed his thing, and, and lo and behold, I got the grant. He didn't get this. My friend didn't get the grant. I got the grant, and um, it was only like three grand or something, which is not much compared to grants today, but um, it was enough for someone who was extremely poor at the time to, to you know, and I had to use it for music, so I, I put together... You know, I got some guys that I was listening to at the time that I liked and uh, had just met. And I put together this band and went into the studio and recorded this record in six hours. I actually gave it to Liebman, and Liebman gave it to this guy in France that he knew, and the guy at Owl Records, and he decided to put it out. You know, it was the beginning of everything for me, and it, it got me some attention. And It was very derivative. It, I, it was definitely me on one level, but it was also derivative of a lot, a lot of stuff I was listening to at the time. I realized that, you know, it's kind of, a lot of this M-based stuff and Steve Coleman and Craig Osby and those guys who I, I you know, I know now and play with. And, uh, but, you know, I was in, influenced, I think, by that. Um, it's very electric and, and I, I like it, but it, it, I spent a lot of time trying to get away from it after that because uh, people compared it to that. Um, so um, every record after that was acoustic and different and, um, really away, not at uh, at all in that genre. But, um, yeah, it was an important thing. It got me gigs in Europe. My first trip to Europe, you know, I went to the Berlin Festival and I did some other stuff. And uh, it was great. It was very important. Um, important thing for me. You know, over your career, you've been a solo cat. You've been with Modesky, Martin, Wood. You've been on all kinds of projects as a side person. How do you balance all that out? I mean, you're, as a solo, a side person, how does that all contribute to you as a whole organism musician? Well, it's, you know, all those side gigs are really important, again, for, for growth and learning and, and keeping fresh ideas going. You know, I'm always playing with really young musicians and still, you know, um, you know, I'm, it's just it's sort of been important for my keeping my musical interest, although I'm more interested in music. I'm hugely obsessed with music, basically, anyway. But but I love just playing other people's music. And then in recent years, I stopped booking my own bands because I kind of did so many, so much with my own bands, and then I realized, you know, it's so much work to get these gigs and all that that it, I could just work as a sideman and then spend much more time just writing music so that I can make records. And I sort of started doing that. So I, I don't work as much with my own bands anymore, but I do work with a lot of other bands. I play in a band in Italy. I play in a band in Serbia um, where I go over and do those things. Really great musicians. And, um, you know, I do different stuff here. I play with, you know, various 
players here. I'm going on the tour in November with this guy Quentin Natchoff and Matt Mitchell and Nate Woods, Kenny Wallace, and, and uh, great music, hard music, but really cool. And, you know, just always doing different things. And it just keeps things interesting and then also keeps enough money coming in that I, I just, it allows me to keep writing and, you know, I'm producing records and I produce all of Donnie McCasland's records, which has become a, a huge thing because I pushed Donnie into electric music, which has been very successful. <laughs> you know, the band became David Bowie's Black Star band, so that was basically my doing. And uh, that's been a big thing in the last couple of years for me because that thing really took off, and then Black Star was a huge record. And, um, you know, so that kind of pushed my producing thing into another level. And, you know, and all the, it's just, uh, it's all, doing all this stuff is just, it keeps me interested. I wake up every day and I'm excited about the day, you know, and what yeah. I'm doing, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I was going to kind of touch on a little bit, too. You know, you produced your 22-plus albums. You've produced mm-hmm. six of Donnie McCaslin's albums. That's the other thing. How How does... How did you get into that role of wanting to be a producer? I mean, a lot of musicians will arrange and compose and whatnot, but producing is kind of a different organism. Yeah, I think actually I think Donnie's record, the newest one that just came out, is or coming out in October, but it's kind of out, but it's coming officially in October. I think it's the eighth record I produced for him. But, I, you know, I think it started, you know, we had this band called Lost Tribe back in the 90s, Adam Rogers and Ben Porowski, David Gilmore and Fima Efron, and, um, we sort of, you know, I produced my own records, you know, but I was producing these records with those guys, and I just always had, it, it always became natural to me to have ideas in the studio, like, you know, why don't we do this, why don't we do this, it would be better if we did this, that, and I think eventually people started to realize that in the studio I had all these ideas, and, and I think at one point Donnie just said, hey, would you produce one of my records, and I said, sure, so I did, and it worked well, and we kept it going, and then I just kept pushing him into different directions, trio records, all the stuff, and eventually these electric records, which now he's, you know, he's very, very successful, and it's it's been a lot to do with me and my production, and and, and it's it's a natural thing for me, just somehow, and, and I love doing it. So now I get called to do that, um, you know, people are asking me to do it, and, and I love it. It's just the music, music's good, and the musicians are good. It's, I love taking things and sculpting them and pushing them in a direction that people might not have thought of. Um, and it's just, you know, so I've, it, I just kind of fell into it in that way, which I think is the way most people fall, become producers. They don't decide to become a producer. It just kind of happens because of their abilities, you know, and their their strengths as a musician, you know, that's one of the things that I do well in music, and I think it was just recognized, that's all it was, I never set out to be a producer, you know, um, and now I just love it, I, I want to do more and more of it, I'd really like to be doing a lot more, because I know I can help so many people, now it's, it's harder, people think that they can do everything on their own, which is not really the case, but, you know, even young students and stuff, they all want to do everything by themselves. They want to write and, and play and produce and do every all their albums by themselves. And then and I think the albums suffer um, by people trying to keep, not delegate some control, uh, 
you know, um, give some power to somebody else. It's good to work with people, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. I've always produced all my own records, but I'm also the kind of guy who's always been suggestions, you know, of always from other musicians have always been really important for me and asking them, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Not giving a lot of instruction. I'm picking the right musicians and then not giving them too much instruction and, and then listening to them what they would do, especially drummers and, and you know, and to, you know, I think I've learned a lot from that and um, that informs the way I'm, I uh, produce things, you know, those experiences. So, Yes, I don't know. I think you just fall into production. I like that. I'm not sure anyone sets out to do it, really. You know, for somebody that's obviously devoted their lives to jazz in every way, shape, and form, why do you love jazz? I, I think I'm just, first of all, I'm just attracted to music in general. First, That's the first thing. I just love music, every kind of music, equally. I wouldn't say I like jazz any more than I like country music or electronic music or classical music. I like it. I like it all. I really do. Um, but the thing that I love about jazz and playing jazz and, and that is just the freedom that it affords with expression, you know. Um, it's the freest art form there is, really. I mean, if you think about it, there's there's nothing else quite like that. I guess you could say painting um, is like that, um, but that's that's a solo effort, you know. Also, and, and so it's the freest art form, and yet you have to work with people. If you're, you know, if you're playing quartet, quintet, whatever, there's something that I love about that. It's like um, it just seems like uh, I don't know what's the word. Uh, there should be more of that in society and life in general. I think that kind of um, working together and listening and uh, and, and spontaneity and um, not being afraid to do things, taking chances. It's a lot of metaphor for a lot of things in life, I think. That's why I think I, I'm, a, I'm a big sports guy, too, and I think, I, you know, they've compared uh, basketball, especially to, you know, a jazz quintet, you know, in the way it, I love that, set, that sense of, like, sometimes having a form to work with and yet having freedom to within that form to do anything you want to express yourself. And um, when you're in the midst of it, improvising, you're swallowing and you're playing, you have this feeling sometimes that it's like, oh yeah, this is it. And you're you're playing with people and you can end the gig and everyone will go, yeah, that was it. That was, it was amazing. But you never describe what it is because it's indescribable. It's yeah. we don't know what it is. It might be re- religion, you know, God, whatever. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. Where it, it's that that thing in life that we know is there, something else. Uh, and I'm not technically a religious person, but uh, I'm not not a religious person either. I just, I, it's just the feeling that there's something else, and you're trying to explain this thing. And it, when you do it in a certain way, it feels great, and it feels right, and it just feels like this is what life should be, <laughs> you know? And Absolutely. if you do that, and your, your, your fellow musicians feel that, the audience feels that, and it's just this amazing feeling. And yet, we have no idea what that is. What the, well, What is that? I don't know. So it keeps you kind of going, because in a way, you want to, 
you just keep describing it because you, you're hoping that you'll better understand what that is. You know, so and I think that jazz affords and, and fosters that sort of thing, whereas a lot of other things don't do that. You know, there's too much maybe control on things, you know. Um, but maybe that's why I like production, too. Even with pop music or whatever, I like to make it malleable and, and you know, open it up and new ideas and new sounds and everything like that. I'm always searching to expand and push things. I've always been that person trying to push stuff into new territory. Yeah, well, yeah it's interesting that the way you describe that, there, especially there at the end, kind of really encapsulates what I've been doing. I've been doing this show for about five years now. I'm going on my 400th show. And I remember when I started this, I didn't want to be a passive observer of Jedi. I wanted to go out and interview. I wanted to get to know, you know, you and Sonny Rollins and all these other musicians and get a real well-rounded view of what is jazz. Because it's just like you say, it's not just playing, it's producing, it's being in big bands, it's soloing, it's arranging, it's composing. There's so many levels and there's at the end of the day, there's a human level to it, and I think that when you're active in it, it just adds to the enrichment of something that's huge. And yeah, it's just like right. you said, there, there's a spirituality that goes through it. But how do you define that in actual words? It's just you feel it. It's the yeah. feeling. And hearing Miles Davis is kind of blue the first time. How do you describe that feeling on you? you right. Music is a language. I mean, it's. I think that is explaining it, but it's explaining it in the you know, musical way, and that that's the, somehow it's explaining it, and we, we feel these things, but we, yeah, it was words, I don't know, <laughs> it's hard to, it's, you're yeah. right, I don't know how we explain it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so let me ask you this, of all the people that you've played for, all the people that have heard your albums, what's one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you about your music? Well, I've had some really strong things said, I I mean, you know, I, I've gotten numerous emails over the years where, you know, people said, you know, I, this has happened maybe four or five times where people said, you know, I was listening to your album and I was with my girlfriend and at that moment I asked, on this song I asked her to marry me and, you know, that, that's happened numerous times. Also, a couple people actually emailed me and said basically, like, they were super depressed and it it saved their lives in a way. I had a couple of emails where wow. it was really heavy where people said, you know, your music is so important to me that I don't know what I would be doing without it. Like I was listening, was so down and I put on this record and it made me feel so good and, and all this, you know, it's, I've gotten these kind of emails over the years and, you know, that's got to be the strongest thing that anyone's ever said. Of course, you get praise from peers and stuff that, is is important and 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 really nice to hear. But the the thing that you really like to hear is that kind of stuff, where people just your average person who's not a musician maybe that's the most important thing. Somebody who's not a musician who who gets it and hears it and then um, it affects them on a, a level like that is really really heavy for me. And that's happened numerous times. So. I think that's those are the kind of things are the, the best things I've heard. So everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, the people that you play for in the crowd. But when you wake up in the morning and you go out into the world, who do you think you are? That's an interesting question. <laughs> um, 
I think I'm, you know, just this person who, who, you know, I'm an artist and I'm trying to, I mean, you know, there's a, there's the selfish side of it. I'm an artist. I mean, there's a, it is a selfish thing on one level. It has to be because to be good at something, you have to care about what you're doing so much and care about you and your thing. So I think there's a lot of thought about me and what I'm doing and how I'm going to do it. But, um, you know, the ultimate thing I think makes me feel good, which is what we're all trying to do, I guess, is is that I'm hopefully bringing something into the world that's a positive thing and, and affects people in a good way. Anyway, you know, just trying to, I think just that, just affecting, trying to affect people in a positive way and thinking that I'm at least putting something good out on the planet for whatever this is, our lives, we don't really know what's happening, you know, it's just we're going along and, and um, I guess that's it. I don't know if I think about it beyond that. I think as I've gotten older, it's become more apparent of, like, who I am. That is who I am. Like, this is what I do and I should be doing and that's what I love. And, and you know, those things as you get older become stronger, I think. It's, it's more apparent that, you know, this is my role in the world, you know? Yeah, and it makes you—it makes me happy, you know. It's like, okay, I like this, you know. I like this. You can't do everything, you know. You have to kind of settle with who you are and define who you are for yourself, and then make that the best you can, you know. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. That's a great answer, and uh, I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. David, thank you for taking some time out for me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking me, and it was a very nice interview. So I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to David for his time, all of his music, and those great stories of his. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. And as a bonus... Go to YouTube, type in Neon Jazz, we're right there. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.